ministry is war. It doesn't matter if you're playing the keyboard or if you're teaching Sunday school class or if you're sitting with one person over a piece of pie in your counseling. Ministry is war because we haven't yet reached complete purity of heart. The war is between my glory and God's glory. What I want to do, what I should want to do, is give people back their awe of God again. So people want to rise at the end of a moment of teaching and say, where is this Jesus? I want to follow him. This is a God of awesome glory. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie. Help Me Teach the Bible is a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway, a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts. Learn more at crossway.org. I am so honored today uh, to be sitting in Greensboro, North Carolina, with one of my favorite Bible teachers, um, Paul Tripp. Paul, thank you for being willing to take time to help us teach the Bible. Well, it's an honor to be with you. Paul and I are both speaking at a crew uh, winter (laughs) conference. I mean, I just finished speaking to about 600 college-age women. I got to tell you, I I felt really intimidated coming into this. I'm always so afraid of being being able to communicate Mm. with college students, but what a great joy Mm. uh, to give out God's Word to people who are hungry for it. Yeah, the way I think about that is what a privilege it is to be able to speak the gospel to a group of people who haven't made any of the major decisions of their life. The The first crew event I I did, I stood up on the stage. I couldn't talk. I was so emotional as I looked over that crowd and thought, how am I able, been chosen to do this? So I love these these events. Yeah. Well, you have had a very uh, long and broad ministry career, Paul. You've planted a church. You founded a Christian school. You've written worship songs. You toured with a Christian band. I didn't know that till I read that <laughs> in your bio. Well, I'm telling you to hear about that. And of course, you were a faculty member at CCEF there at, at Westminster in Philadelphia for many years, um, and also a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church. So, what is ministry like for you these days? My ministry is is mainly speaking and writing. Uh, God began to expand my platform and gave me an opportunity to serve the church in a, in a wider, wider way. I never thought I'd be a writer in the sense of what that normally means, but I just finished my 20th book, which is amazing to me, and that has taken me around the world, given me just wonderful opportunities. And I have a single motivation, is just to connect the transforming power of Jesus Christ to everyday life. I think the the average Christian out there has a fairly decent understanding of salvation past, the forgiveness they've received in Christ. They have a fairly clear understanding of salvation future, the eternity they will live with the Lord, but they're not sure about the present benefits of the gospel in everyday life. And and that's my passion. I want to connect um, all the places people live every day, the, the normal struggles of everyone's life to the just glorious, beautiful message of the work of Christ. Jesus didn't just die for my past or die for my future. He died for my here and now, and that really is the passion of my ministry. You are the author of many books. Your book, New Morning Mercies, I've shared this with you before, how powerfully that did exactly what you're talking about in terms of really applying the gospel 
in my own family's mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. as the three of us worked our way through that mm-hmm. over a year. One thing I found interesting about that is that in some ways you kept saying the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. And what was really meaningful to me was I realized I needed to hear it over and over yeah. again. Yeah. And in during some really difficult days, mm-hmm. I needed over and over again every day to hear the hope of the gospel for sinners, which is me and my husband and mm-hmm. my son. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, the, the truth is I wrote No Morning Mercies for me uh, because I just became more and more convinced that there were many ways that I was still a gospel amnesiac uh, forgetting what I've been given and living out of other perverse and dysfunctional motivations. And I needed that reminder every day. And uh, I think you probably have this experience. I I would finish a devotional and I would have learned as I was writing because the Spirit of God meets me and I think he meets me because he loves his church. And I'd walk upstairs to just read a section of the devotion I couldn't read because I was in tears because it had so exposed my heart or comforted my heart. I wanted a devotional that that sort of danced in two places, one helping you to understand how deep and profound your need is, but to do that, always giving you the hope of the love and grace and presence and power of the Savior who's in you and with you and for you. And I love how the Bible is shockingly honest and gloriously hopeful at the same time. And the honesty doesn't diminish the hope and hope doesn't negate the honesty. And I I really want my writing to reflect that. Well, I really wanted to talk to you today about some things I read in a couple other of your books that I think have particular application to those who listen to help me teach the Bible. And that is those of us who teach the Bible. And I want to talk to you about some things in two of your books. One of them, your book, Awe, Why It Matters for Everything We Think, Say, and Do. And then your book, A Dangerous Calling, uh, Confronting the Unique Challenges of Pastoral Ministry. And as I read that, certainly you're targeting very much the pastor who week by week is um, managing the ongoing life of the church and is up front. But there were some sections in that in particular that I think point out some dangers and difficulty for anybody mm-hmm. who's up front or, you know, even if you're behind a keyboard, <laughs> in a sense, teaching mm-hmm. the Bible, um, there were some dangers that come in there. So I picked uh, five things um, to talk about based on some things that I read in the book. One is motivation for ministry. Uh, Second, the goal of ministry. Three, the damaging fruit of self-glory. Four, the battle between preparation and personal devotion. And then the danger of a disconnect between ministry persona and personal life. So hopefully we can just dive in, if you don't mind. So first of all, let's start with um, motivation for ministry. You said in 
your book, Awe, and in the chapter on ministry, it's always easier for bad agendas to slither their way into our hearts and into our ministries when we are unclear about the big, grand agenda that we are serving. So what is the big, grand agenda that we are serving that might help us to figure out, evaluate our own selves to say, is that my motivation? Maybe the, maybe the first thing to say is that uh, it's almost impossible this side of eternity not to have mixed motives in ministry. I appreciate you saying that. I remember when uh, a Sunday school teacher, when I was sitting, the first time he said, your motives are always mixed. And I remember I was new to Reformed theology, mm. so I didn't have a sense of our utter depravity. Right. And I wanted to argue with him. Yeah. I was quite sure. <laughs> that at least sometimes my motives were perfectly pure. Um, I want to be liked. I I want to have success. I want people to affirm me. Uh, it's always mixed in there too, and it? it's it's there. There was a moment where I was the Sunday evening preacher at Tenth Presbyterian Church in that historical pulpit. What a what a great privilege! And there was a particular elder who didn't really get the glory of my preaching. And he would write me emails and get together with me and give me tutorials on preaching. And I would like to say that that didn't bother me, but it did. And I would stand up to preach, and his head seemed massively bigger than everybody else's. There was one week when I was preparing, and I came to the second point in my preparation. I thought, this will get him. He'll come to me after this, and he'll say, I was wrong. You're right. You are a great preacher. Now... That is idolatrous preaching. That's preaching for my glory. And so you have to affirm that ministry is war. It doesn't matter if you're playing the keyboard or if you're teaching Sunday school class or if you're sitting with one person over a piece of pie in your counseling. Ministry is war because we haven't yet reached complete purity of heart. The war is between my glory and God's glory. That's the easiest way to talk about it. I would like to say that I don't want people to be in awe of me, but I can't say that. My motivation for ministry is that I'm, I'm in front of people that are in a, a massive war of awe because human beings were higher, hardwired for awe. Uh, and there's really only two categories. There's awe of creation or awe of the creator and so what I want to do, what I should want to do, is give people back their awe of God again. So people want to rise at the end of a moment of teaching and say, where is this Jesus? I want to follow him. This is a God of awesome glory. But that competes with something else in me. And, and I just think whole, a wholesome, God-honoring awe-inspiring of God, ministry just starts by confessing that this war is in your heart. Rather than denying it. Then Confess denying it's there. It. Yeah, it's, it's there, and it's, it's, it's going to continue to be there. And crying out for, for help. Uh, so is it unrealistic to think that this is ever something we completely conquer? I think that you can become more aware 
of the on your own life, more aware of your battle patterns, the various ways that you particularly function as a glory thief. Uh, but it won't completely be over until I'm, I'm on the other side. Uh, what sanctification is, is God is in the midst of a lifelong commitment to rescue me from me. That's what it is. Because the greatest dangers of the Christian experience don't live outside of me, they live inside of me. Uh, if to the pure all things are pure, there it is. Uh, it's always the evil inside of me that hooks me to the evil outside of me. And if you understand the completeness of the work of Christ, you're not afraid to confess that. I'm not, I'm not uh, fronting in front of God. I don't have to anymore. That's burdensome. I can, I can confess in the middle of preparation to teach a small group or a Sunday school class or whatever and just say, God, I, even as I'm preparing, I'm, I'm thinking of how much people will think, wow, this person's really something. Look at his insight. I suppose we all have certain um, kind of like lights on the dashboard that come mm-hmm. on when there's a problem inside the engine. Maybe there are certain lights that come on in the dashboard for us that say, hey, uh, you know, I, I can think what a couple of mine are. You mm-hmm. know, I know at this point when I'm teaching, if I get really nervous, it's because I'm really concerned about what people are going to yep. think about me. Yep. If what's really driving me is my desire to give out God's word, I'm obsessed with that. And I'm generally not nervous because I can just hardly wait to say it. Yeah. But there are certain times where I'll get really nervous. And that's, it's like a light goes off on the dashboard for mm-hmm. me. And I've had to just, you know, back behind stage or off, go into a room and just get on my knees and say, and just confess it. Like you said, say, God, I'm really concerned. And sometimes I know exactly who it is, (laughs) a particular person or maybe a group or somebody say, you know, I care too much Mm. about what they think. And that's why I'm so nervous because I want to impress them. And, and it's important to say that confession is, is a freedom. It is. Denial is burdensome. Because I have to keep pulling off this this fantasy of who I am. That's burdensome. And the gospel frees us from that burden. Uh, there's a way in which it's beautiful not to give a rip what people think. I don't mean in, in a sense where someone has something biblically to point out in me, but not to be terrified by all the variety of reactions a crowd I have. I mean, that'll just paralyze you. And you you don't need to be there. You don't have to look up and wait for the reactions of people in your small group. It's not what you're there for. You know, another light on the dashboard for me is when I'm unwilling to celebrate the affirmation of some other teacher. Hmm. And it just shows I'm a glory hound. And I... Not only do I not want God to have all the glory in what I do, but it reveals in me, I want to keep it all for myself. And it's really ugly to see in yeah, my own it, soul. I think one of the places for me that I've, I've noticed over the years is a particular, I'm almost, I'm almost never nervous when I speak, but in times when I'm speaking in front of people, that are my ministry heroes. 
And what is that about? I want to be in the club. I want to be accepted into that club. And, um, you know, I think, I think there's a long period of time where I just denied that. And it's just true. It's, it's there. And then I'm all too attentive to their reactions. I'm all too willing to say things in a particular way that, that they would say it or they would hear it. And all of a sudden, rather than wanting to be an instrument of the awe of God in people's lives, it's about, will I be accepted by this group of people that I have esteemed so? How does having the goal of ministry being to, in a sense, help to open people's eyes to the awe and glory of God, how is that different than wanting them to understand something that I'm teaching from the Bible or wanting them to change something about the way they live? My goal is not predominantly informational. It's transformational. I think it's possible to communicate a body of information that people can grasp in a way that changes nobody. It's abstract, impersonal, theologically accurate, but it doesn't touch where I live. It doesn't touch the recesses of my heart. Isn't it interesting that the skilled theologians of Jesus' generation did not recognize the Messiah. Everything they had ever preached about and hoped for had come. That should scare us. What I understand is that it's not enough to teach information. It's information to what end. So I always want to move toward the end of a life of willing, joyful surrender to the King of King and the Lord of Lords, his way, his will, his plan, his glorious grace. And so any information I give, I want to have direction to it. I love the theology of the Word of God. I love all of the information, but Scripture isn't actually a systematic theology. It's a narrative. And it's a, it's a narrative of God's zeal to rescue, restore, and redeem. Jesus taught to an end. The prophets taught to an end. The Psalms had an end to them. It's worship of the Lord and letting go of the temporary comforts of life in a fallen world and and finding my comfort in my Redeemer. And so that's life stuff. There's a second thing to say is that means... I'm always aware that what needs to happen, I can't create. That I am utterly dependent on the Spirit of God applying the Word of God to the hearts of people in ways that I never could. Let's move over to some of your chapters in your book, Dangerous Calling. Before we talk about specifics in the book, what's underneath this book? I mean, I I know know you've... You've been counselor to and certainly interacted with a lot of people in ministry. So 
what was it you saw or continue to see over and over again in the lives of people who are handling God's word in front of people that pushed you to want to call what they're doing dangerous? As I began to um, tell my own story, around the world I had pastor after pastor tell me their stories. And as I listened to the stories of pastors, I became more and more persuaded that there's something fundamentally wrong with ministry culture that started even in seminary, starts with the way we call people into ministry, uh, continues in the way we allow pastors and people in ministry to live their lives. And I got to the point where I could not not address it. Maybe this one moment would be helpful. Uh, I was doing a pre-conference a whole day uh, attached to the Bethlehem Pastors Conference. And it was on a Monday, and I did the Dangerous Calling material, started with my own story, and began to just confront pastors with the dangers of ministry, the, the unique temptations to somebody who is in a ministry position. After I got done, I had a line of men who wanted to talk to me, and they didn't want to take pictures of me. They didn't want to talk about their own experience. Men weeping, saying, I don't know how to go home. I don't know how to tell my story. I don't know how to get help. Uh, John had asked me to do the 7 o'clock devotional the next morning, and he said, you know, in so many words, no one comes to this. It's so early in the morning, but would you do it for me? I said, yeah, I'd be glad to do it. The next morning, 400 pastors showed up. They didn't want to hear me talk. They wanted to carry on the conversation because they had recognized these dangers in their own lives. And I wanted the book to initiate a conversation that, with the hope that it would begin to change the way we think about uh, ministry and ministry life. You have one section. Um, the whole section is called The Danger of Arrival. Um, so first talk to us in general what you mean. What is this attitude of arrival that some of us get to when, as Bible teachers? Well, if you're, if you're biblically literate and you're theologically aware, it's a small step to name yourself as spiritually mature. That In that sense, the definition of spiritual maturity is about knowledge and literacy. And so you begin to think of yourself as a grace graduate. That you don't actually need the message that you proclaim. Well, that sets up all, all kinds of dangers, obviously. But it also has hugely important negative effects on the way you communicate the gospel. Because nobody gives grace more beautifully, more tenderly, more passionately than a person who knows they desperately need it themselves. Anytime I teach and preach, I require of myself a confessional or devotional moment. That is me intentionally placing myself... Are you talking about... Before you go to teach or speak or in yep. the talk? No. You, you create During time preparation. In preparation specifically to focus so on I confession. So I am absolutely 
intentionally place myself under this passage of Scripture. Sometimes the confession is, God, I don't see how this applies to me. Help me, help me to see how this passage exposes me. Or I'm doing this as an assigned exercise, but it lacks the glory this passage should. I mean, it's just whatever the confession is necessary. Sometimes it's, it's my head down on my Bible saying, God rescue me. I'm, I'm exposed by this passage. I need your help. But what that does is that creates excitement in me, passion, uh, a humility, uh, a tenderness toward the listener, because I'm not standing above them, I'm standing with them. In fact, in my years at 10th, I actually, I actually did that physically. So when the sermon time was over and we had the benediction, people would sit down and I would come down off that big high pulpit and walk halfway up the aisle standing in the middle of the people that God had called me to and I'd say okay what are we going to do what we've with what we just heard I'd say I don't know if you picked this up but I didn't know if I was going to be capable of preaching this because it was so it so excavated my my own heart I did that to, as a metaphor that that's who I am. I'm not the big guy who arrived up there on that pulpit that looked like a ship crashed in the middle of, in front of the building. Uh, I'm a needy man. And I've been called to ministry not because I'm able, but because God's able. Uh, and so I, I think that that is very, very important to gospel ministry and I think that formal ministry training tends to take in a different direction tends to make you think that you're the expert and you're mature and you've arrived and you're in the 95th percentile and all that is heady stuff I mean I would get when I was teaching at Westminster Seminary I would get response papers they were shockingly arrogant from students. And I would always require them to have an appointment with me. And because I I wanted to help them to see the kind of I've made it already attitude that was theirs before they ever got into ministry. We tend to look for theological, biblical experts when we're calling people to ministry or looking for somebody who's a small group leader. I don't think that's wrong. You've got to know your theology. You've got to know your Bible. But is that person living that in their own life? Do they have a sense of neediness? So you said that you think this starts in seminary. I think that's true. But I'm also thinking about just the pressures of ministry because whether you're the pastor of the church or you're on staff doing pastoral care or you're head of the youth group or women's ministry, you lead a men's Bible study, whatever it is, you've got people who are coming to you wanting counsel and wisdom. They're coming to you with scriptural questions, but also just very much life questions. 
And it seems like that can be also a part of one of, of pushing you to a place of arrival and that it's driven by in some ways a good motive. It's just like, I, I want to live up to being able to um, have the answers and minister to people and have the credibility to minister into these hard situations. Um, maybe some of that's what drives us to that. Sure. Uh, but maybe we should broaden the conversation. What that is is just one particular ministry application of something ever every sinner does. Every sinner says, no, that's not me. I'm different. You're the angry person. My anger's different. Your anger is sin. My anger is it's not really sin-sin like yours. <laughs> uh, no, that, no that, that wasn't really lust. I'm just a man who enjoys beauty. Uh, no, no, that wasn't gossip. That was just a very extended personal prayer request. So... We're, we're all involved in systems of self-atonement, all of us. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible thing that takes place in, in all of our lives. It's that, it's that drive to make what God says is not good feel okay in my life. And I say this a lot, and maybe it'd be worth repeating here, that no one's more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. We're in a constant conversation with ourselves, and you're either preaching to yourself the true gospel of devastating sin and glorious redemption or a false gospel of self-righteousness. Now, if that exists in all of us, wouldn't it make sense that ministry just gives it soil to grow in? Because I am the answer person. I am more knowledgeable I do have experience. Uh, people do look to me. They do hear me. They do thank me for things I've said. That just gives a fertile ground for what exists in all of us to grow. That's why you call this dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Because that, that temptation is just heightened by ministry success, ministry prominence, ministry experience. Well, I'm anxious to get to, but I'd also like to avoid this next topic. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason I want to avoid it is is so personally challenging to me. And I'm talking about the section in your book, Dangerous Calling, the chapter you call Always Preparing. You wrote here, it hit me that I was not reading, you're talking about reading the scriptures. I was not reading with myself in view, but rather with my future hearers. I wasn't being informed, confronted, grieved, or transformed by the passage. In fact, the passage had made minimal impact on me. There was no personal worship this mor- that morning. There was no hunger after God, no grief over sin, no celebration of grace, no movement in my commitment uh, to live by faith. It was more me relating to my future audience. Ouch than it was me relating to God. I think all preparation to preach or teach should be devotional, but in this instance, preparation crushed devotion. I think anybody who's regularly teaching, and, you know, I'm fortunate in that I go many different places and I use the same message many times, but there are some people, they're teaching week after week, Mm. and it can be such a temptation to when you open up God's word, immediately get those wheels turning for how you're going to use it. 
when you teach or how you're going to outline it and mm. how you're going to title it and how you're going to illustrate it and jumping to how you're going to teach as somebody else without taking it in for yourself. So clearly you understand that. What's the answer mm. to that? Well, I've realized that very, very early in my ministry, I became comfortable with personal devotion being kidnapped by preparation. What was should have been my early morning devotional time was always conducted with an audience in view. And that was very dangerous to my own walk with God. I wasn't sinking my own the roots of my own heart deep into the nutrient soil of the gospel. Uh, no wonder my anger was able to grow. No wonder I was blind to it. And it makes perfect sense to me because every time I had the Bible in my hands, it was for preparation. There seems to me just two steps of dealing with that. One is just confession. Confession that we can become comfortable with an impersonal relationship with the Word of God. That our excitement is about communicating it our excitement is not being rescued by it. You can celebrate the gospel and your celebration has nothing to do with your own life and your own heart. The second thing is you have to fight to keep those devotional times devotional. You fight those moments. Maybe that's stopping and praying, saying, Lord, I'm, I'm doing it again. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I've begun to think of Sunday or Tuesday night or whatever, I am more and more persuaded that self-examination is a community project, that I need to invite people in to these battles in my heart. Now, someone's not going to be with me in my devotional time, but I can say to a brother or sister in Christ, you know, you know, I'm, I teach regularly and I have this problem. Uh, I'm... I'm regularly swept away and what should have been a time of looking at my own heart and life in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ became another time of preparation. And would you check up on me? Mm-hmm. Would you just remind me, help me? That's a bold but humble thing to make ourselves accountable to somebody else. Yeah, uh, ask me how I'm doing. Uh, and if I give you a non-answer, remind me of this conversation. <laughs> Uh, because I I need help. The seeds of effective public ministry is private devotion. The way you talk about grace when you have been broken by your need of grace is completely different than when grace is a theological concept that you're communicating to others. There is a real relationship between the degree to which I have a robust devotional life and the true effectiveness of the way I communicate the gospel of God's grace. In practical terms, you were talking about a separation. For you personally, is there a separate place you do these things to help do that? Or do you have a particular time set aside to do that? So how do you practically (laughs) fight that battle? uh, Because I think this is a big one. A couple things for me. Uh, 
One of the things I've done that has been practically helpful is I've determined every morning that usually before I get out of bed, I will pray these three prayers. The first one is a confession. It's, God, I'm a, I'm a man of desperate need of help today. I want the Lord to hear my confession, but I want myself to hear my confession. The second prayer is, Lord, I pray that you would send your helpers my way. Whether that's a person or a hymn or a podcast, Lord, you have a field of instruments. Would you bless me with some instrument of gospel help today? And then third prayer is, Lord, won't you give me the humility to receive the help when it comes? Now, the reason I want to pray those prayers the minute I'm conscious is because they set the direction of the next period of time. Because what I now get up with is not just, oh, i got to prepare, i got to prepare, but I'm a needy man. And so as I open the Bible, I open it out of the context of those those prayers. And mm-hmm. I want God to meet me through his word. Um, I just found that discipline has been very, very helpful for me to start with confession of need before I do anything else in my day so that when I'm at that place with the Bible in my hands, it's that's the direction of my, my thought. I try... I, to do something else, to never do any preparation before my breakfast. The reason is before breakfast is devotion, after breakfast is preparation. That's sort of a dumb little discipline. No, that's a it, brilliant discipline. But it works for me. So I don't, I don't look at outlines. I don't start those things until after Llewellyn and I have had breakfast together. Because that's just a that's just a way of reserving that time for my my personal worship of the Lord. How about your phone? Do you have a rule about when yeah, you're allowed I don't, I don't. to look I, at your or I, email or however you do uh, it? There may be there may be moments because of ministry things I'm involved with that are more of an emergency nature that I'll wake up and look at my phone. But I I try not to go there. I mean, the one thing I do on my phone is. I tweet the gospel every morning, so I, I always do my tweets. Uh, but no, I'm not. I'm not doing that. Uh, I, it's it's again those prayers, and then what happens before breakfast is my personal devotional time. It's the time for Luella, her personal time as well. And after breakfast, we discuss our day and we go about our day. Mm-hmm. And that's just been just that. Before and after breakfast thing yeah. has been just a way of, of controlling So you that. kind of have a, a time set. Yeah. You, you go your separate ways and yeah. have your, but then you have a time set. We're meeting together for breakfast. Yeah. yeah. Also in this chapter about arrival, we've got this section about self-glory and then the one about always preparing. And then you talk about the danger of disconnect between ministry persona and personal life. So, first of all, it seems to me what you've just been describing, is, really throughout our whole conversation, are things that help to save us mm. from that disconnect. But you ask the question: Are there areas of clear disharmony or disconnect 
between your public ministry persona and your private life, have you become comfortable with the disconnects? I, I think that's the key question. Well, that's the question. Because we because all have disconnects. The, everybody has disconnects. The, the, the real question is, have you become comfortable Settled in. With, mm-hmm. with, with those? Uh, because there's, there's always going to be a disharmony between what I'm able to grasp when I'm able to communicate and the real everyday of my living. It's remarkable to me that often nobody gets less of the body of Christ than people who are public teachers because there's assumptions made about them. Do you mean doesn't get ministered to hmm. intersect with? Okay. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, I, I've had these creepy conversations with people who mean well and say, I know you're Paul Tripp and... Now, loaded into that is our horrible misconceptions about who I am. I'm a bit of a mess. There's never a day in my life where I don't lay down empirical evidence of my need for grace. I'm not that Paul Tripp. It doesn't exist. So when that person says that to me, I know what they're thinking. You don't need You've what I need. You've got it all together. Yeah. And so if you're, if you're a regular teacher... I think it's important for you to do things that break that down. I don't mean giving gory detail of your sin. But there are times in, in, in you can take a turn in teaching and say, I wish I could say I was good at this, but I'm not. Pray for your teacher. That's changing culture. That's a good thing for people to hear. And my experience is people follow up because you've, you've, you've given them permission. There's nowhere in the New Testament where we are led to believe that a public ministry person doesn't need the body of Christ. If Christ is the head of his body, everything else is just body. And so, who am I? I'm just another member of the body of Christ that's been given, given a per- particular set of gifts. I need everything the body of Christ has to offer me. We attend Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia. Eric Mason is our pastor. And when people ask me where I go to church, they always say, well, are you one of the pastors? Uh, And I just say, no, I just go there to soak in the gospel because I need it. And I love that I have this opportunity now in my life to not be in that position. I love Sunday morning. I I virtually run to those services because I'm so hungry for the gospel. That that separation is, is a great danger. I mean, it is... Sadly, fairly easy for us to sector our hearts, to preach with enthusiasm something that is not actually exampled in our own lives. And that's not okay. A couple of questions that brings up to me. So number one, I mean, you have been behind the scenes with a a lot of people in ministry. Can you mention two or three things that you think are the most common things that you see people in ministry, the the disconnect they get comfortable with? Or do you think it's just quite unique to every person? Uh, typical to uh, people who are senior in ministry, sort of have a lot of power, is control and anger. They have silencing ways of communicating that everyone around the table realizes that's the final word from on high and we better not contradict it. Uh, I think probably more regular is that I am preaching a message of grace, but I am a wife, mother, husband, father of ungrace. 
patterns of lust, of jealousy, of materialism, love of acclaim. Every one of those is destructive to ministry. If I'm going to get at this stuff, I need instruments of seeing in my life. Uh, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 said, says to encourage one another daily, as you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, sin deceives, and guess who it deceives first? I have no problem seeing the sin of other people. I can be surprised if mine is pointed out. And the thing that is most dangerous about spiritual blindness, it's not like physical blindness. When you're physically blind, you know you're blind. Spiritually blind people are blind to their blindness. And so I need to welcome people in my life to help me. Somebody has the confidence to even speak to ways that I've taught that are a bit proudful or condemning in ways that don't depict the gospel. Disqualification comes when, not in a snapshot, but in a video that's gotten in the way of my effectiveness. Uh, you know, when when the culture has become so controlled, so legalistic, so proud, that I'm not encouraging to people anymore, I'm not stimulating of other people's gifts, uh, it's about me, it's, it's about what I want out of ministry, well, there's a place where that just is, is disqualifying. But the problem is, there's all kinds of subtleties to get there. You think about this. How do you build your own kingdom in ministry? By doing ministry. How do you seek to be part of the building of the kingdom of God in ministry? By doing ministry. Uh, both people are doing ministry, but they're, they're moved by different things. And I, I need watchful eyes. Mm -hmm. And I, I just cannot live in isolation. I had a person who's been my longest adult friend almost four decades now send me an email and said he needed to talk to me and I could tell by the email he wanted to talk about me and he pointed out some things I could feel my chest tighten my ears redden I wanted to defend myself but he was right I'm very thankful that we have constructed a relationship where he, he knew that I would work to receive what he had to say and I can honestly say I am still living off the fruit of that conversation because he's opened my eyes. That thing he talked about, I keep seeing places. Now, that's a beautiful thing. That's something, that was a dangerous thing that had potential to really harm my ministry. That Nancy, I didn't see it. I needed somebody to see it for me, but who I've welcomed into my life to speak about those things. It was humiliating. I wanted to defend myself. It hurt that he saw this because I want to be a bit of his, his hero. But it was a wonderful conversation. And uh, like I say, it's, it's borne really good fruit in my life. I think we have to be really purposeful to welcome people hmm to do that, don't you think? And that we can have subtle ways of letting people know that they're not welcome to tell mm. us those things, that, that that we'll either be too devastated by them or 
you know, the way we res- respond at all when someone challenges us. But I'm, I'm grateful for some people like that in my life, too. I think about this one friend of mine. I was waxing quite eloquent about my frustration about how this one ministry thing was being handled. And it's almost like I talked myself into a corner. And at one point I said to her, I said, I guess really the issue here is my pride. And she looked at me and she goes, gee, you think? (laughs) (laughs) And I just think, wow, I'm glad for a friend like that. I am so grateful she's in my life and you know, that we could laugh about it, but also um, that she has the boldness to help me get to that point. See, and I, I think it's it's important for us not to minimize the power of one conversation. Uh, in my younger pastoral days, I, I was very, very discouraged. I didn't want to be in ministry anymore. I wasn't seeing the fruit that I wanted to see. And so I went to my elders and said, I want to resign. I said, Paul, we don't want you to resign. I said, no, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I want to. I want to. I want to go. I had uh, had an education degree, and I'd found a Christian school that needed a principal in Southern California. I thought, man, Jesus in Southern California doesn't get any better than that. I was running, and so they begged me not to resign, but I finally just wouldn't relent. And they said, "Okay, well, coming Sunday, we'll we'll announce to the congregation." So we did, and people were shocked and saddened. I was. I was the only pastor that many of those people had ever known. And so I was greeting people at the after the service, and I was the last one out of the building. I was locking the door of the church building. I turned around, and the oldest man in the congregation was standing there. And he said, uh, Paul, can I, can I say something to you? I said, sure. He said, we all know you're immature. I thought, well, this is a great start. Uh, but then he said something that literally changed the direction of my life. He said, where is the church going to get mature leaders if immature men run? We haven't asked you to go. Stay. I walked home. Luella was already home with our children weeping. I got to the door, and she said, what's wrong? I said, I can't leave. God has, the word picture I use is God nailed my shoes to the porch of that church. I can't go. I called my elders and said, okay, I'm an idiot. Can we, can I unresign? And they said, we would love for you to do that. And uh, in a very humbling moment, the next Sunday I got up and I confessed just my immaturity to the congregation said, I want to stay. If you will have me, I would love to stay. None of what anybody knows about the ministry of Paul Tripp would have ever been known if I had run. There would have been any books written. None of the influence for the gospel that I've experienced, none of that would have happened. One conversation of one man. And I think often we minimize what a conversation can do in a person's heart. And on both sides... I need to welcome people in because I don't know when God will give me one of those conversations. But I also need to have the courage to speak the truth in love to somebody and not minimize that I may have seen something that can change the tra- trajectory of their of their ministry. Well, thank you so much for You're this, welcome. Paul. Would you close by just speaking directly 
to Bible teachers out there and they're hearing this conversation. Perhaps they're looking in the mirror a little bit, seeing some signs of some of these dangers that you've Mm. talked about in their own Mm. lives. Would you just give us a word of warning perhaps, but also encouragement? Mm. Well, I'd, I'd like to say that when I'm in a room with a bunch of Bible teachers, I'm in a room with my heroes. I, I just love the fact that people have given their lives to teaching the Word of God, whether that's uh, with young mothers or a women's ministry, men's ministry, or pastoral ministry, or, or whatever the form of that is. I think that's a wonderful thing. But it's important to recognize that ministry is war. And that war is not fought between you and your hearers. It's fought on the turf of your heart. It's fought for control of your soul. You have to recognize that battle. And you have to pray for the commitment, the intentionality to be a good soldier in that battle. And to marshal resources of help in your life. And know that God never calls us to a task without giving us what we need to do it. If he puts a Red Sea in front of you, he's going to give you the ability to swim. He's going to send a boat. He's going to build a bridge. Or he's going to part the waters. God will meet you. He will give you insight and comfort that will deepen the effectiveness of your ministry. Don't be afraid of confession. Don't be afraid of your sin, weakness, and failure because God will never, you will never see the back of God's head. He will always turn his face toward your confession. And not only will he meet you and strengthen you and grow you, but he'll use your confession to make the thing that he's called you to do even more meaningful and effective. Run, run, run toward the conviction of the Holy Spirit and watch the fruit that God will bring out of that. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts, including Awe, Why It Matters for Everything We Think, Say, and Do, and Dangerous Calling, Confronting the Unique Challenges of Pastoral Ministry by our guest today, Paul David Tripp. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.